0: Signing Bibles after the uh, after my sessions. Awesome! Hey, super uh, privileged to be here. We just had uh, Pastor Zach and and Rochelle up at our spot um, just a few uh, weeks ago, and uh, they were just flying through uh, on a Wednesday. And so we had a minister at a leadership small group I do, and uh, it was fire. And I'm uh, I'm, not—I'm Pentecostal, charismatic, uh, and uh, believe in uh, the gifts and use as many of them uh, at all times as I can. Uh, But I'm not usually like the uh, the 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 chakra show guy. Uh, And I don't know what happened uh, when Zach came and ministered in my parents' living room, but I just laid on the floor uh, for like half an hour. And I'm not usually that guy. Uh, But uh, I appreciate the authenticity of what uh, your pastors carry here, and. it's truly an honor to to minister. Every time I'm I'm in uh, scenarios like this, I feel um, you you get stirred up. You feel something inside of you um, uh, that goes, "Oh, I resonate with what somebody else carries," uh, and that's part of the discernment. But I think it's uh, I forget who talked about this. Maybe it was I, I think it was you yesterday. You talked about um, how uh, so many times we allow the um, demonic to hijack words like manifest or things like that. Somebody mentioned that. I think one of, the, one of the ways that the demonic hijacks um, words is through familiar spirits. Every time you hear like a familiar spirit, somebody goes, oh, that's demonic, something. But I think that that actually works in a positive sense as well, that when you get around people who carry what you carry, who have something that you're plowing into, all of a sudden there's a melding of hearts and you go, oh, I want to do life with these people. And I don't, when we don't have to agree uh, on everything. But here's the reality. One of the things that we've learned through planting over the last year is that um Unity doesn't presuppose unanimity uh, that you can be unified with somebody and walk in agreement with somebody uh, even if every single point of your theology doesn't match up all the time. I think sometimes we build altars to minor things and end up missing out on the forest for the trees uh, because we've we've built we've we 've bought into a false mindset that says... Uh, that unless somebody is exactly like me that I can't learn from them and they can't learn from me and here's the reality you can affirm who people are without having to agree with everything they do right you can learn from the from the council of scripture from the council of uh, people who are walking around you because all of us carry something unique and something um, different I, we planted a year ago uh, in a city north of Seattle about 40 minutes uh, me and me and Mike and uh And one of the things that we learned right away is that the people that you think will come out and celebrate your victories when you have them are often the people who are on the complete opposite side, right, who are not interested in your victories. Uh, And people who you've never known before, never had any contact with before, come out of the woodwork to say, hey, I believe in you, we're praying for you, we're standing with you, we're on your same team, we're on your same side. And God took Mike and I through this process for like the last year, ripping, uh, ripping out of us the need Uh, to live for compliments. And here's the reality. When you live for compliments, the problem is you die by criticism. And so what God had to do was to rip away that thing inside of us that said, I need somebody else's approval to run with passion after God. uh, Or I need somebody else's um, uh, uh, advice on what my passion looks like as I run after God. And so we've been kind of on an interesting uh, journey. Uh, Like I said, we planted about 12 months ago. Actually, this Sunday is our one-year anniversary And so we're flying back uh, tomorrow uh, to get uh, set up for that, and and we're super excited about that. We just bought uh, our first building in in the downtown historic district of the city that we planted in. It's the oldest church building in the city that we're in. A church was moving out because they're moving into actually a location like this, like a strip mall, and so they sold us their building. Uh, That church got planted because 10 women had a prayer meeting 130 years ago in the city of Snohomish, and they prayed for revival. And so we believe that we are walking in the fruit of seeds that people have planted a century ago, that we are the living fulfillment of what other people have sown into. And that's what kind of gives, uh, I think, uh, us that perspective of going like, hey, this thing is really actually bigger than us. Because here's the reality, God wants revival more than me, and he wants revival more than you, because it was on his heart before it was on my heart. Uh, And so what we've done is said, hey, can we build something that instead of fitting in the mind of man fits in the heart of God and then run after that Uh, and then allow him to be the one who course corrects and directs and guides and leads. And so instead of trying to like form our vision or our heart within the constraints of like denominational guidelines, what we're trying to do is go, God, what is your heart for our city? Because at the end of the day, this is your church. You're building it. and We have the privilege of helping out because even like Jesus tells Peter, he says, I will build whose church? My church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So that tells us two things. A, he's the builder. Number two, we're on offense. Uh, And so we don't try to spend a whole lot of time uh, defending uh, Jesus because he doesn't need our help uh, defending anything. Uh, But we just say, hey, this is who we are. This is our assignment. This is what we've been placed on earth to do. Uh, And we're not going to apologize for going after it because the reality is that our world doesn't suffer from a lack of good churches, good preachers, good teachers, or good worship. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, And in fact, if good preaching could have saved America, we would have been saved a long time ago. Right? And so so what our world doesn't need uh, is another person who is, you know, love drunk on their own title or self-importance or feeling like they're saying something that's never been said before. In fact, one of the reasons why I love being at conferences like this is because I always get hit by revelation. Like, for example, those of you who were here last night to hear Herald Session, my brain hurts, Right? I, whatever it was squirting was hurtful, you know, Uh, and and I wanted to get home and just sleep uh, because there was so much. I go, oh, like it just answered so many. You ever in a service where questions get answered that you didn't even know you were asking? Uh, And so that was for me uh, last night. But here's what I love about Revelation. To me, Revelation isn't new light on new things. It's new light on old things. Um, and so it's a new perspective on a really old truth because there's nothing new under the sun. And so, um, in moments uh, of revelation, what we recognize is oh, God has hidden this in times past. Because it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. And so we are searching out the things that have been hidden for a long time. And so as we're plowing in to revival in Snohomish, as you guys are plowing in to revival in Las Vegas, you're not trying to create something that hasn't already existed in the heart of God. You're just shining new light on what's always been here. And so from the foundations of the earth, what I think is that God has spoken Revival and Reformation over cities, regions, communities, nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every kindred, every people group, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I think the heart of God from the cross forward is that all who call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. We reject in totality the idea that the cross was only useful for certain people. Our filter by which we view the world is stained red by the blood of Jesus. The idea that our gospel is built on a bloody cross, an empty tomb, and an upper room is the foundation of not only only who we are, but how we do what we do. And so we look at the world around us and go like, no, God has already planted seeds of salvation. He's already spoken words of revival and reformation. And what he's looking for is a remnant people who will agree with the thing that he's already spoken. And so I'm not trying to twist God's arm into sending revival. I'm just praying the prayer of Habakkuk. God, revive your work in our day because it's your word, not mine. And your word never fails. And so as long as his words in my mouth, uh, my mouth begins to speak his words. I agree with the mandate with the government of heaven. You know, I got called by our uh, newspaper uh, in our city about two months ago. My background is in politics. I was a lobbyist before I was a preacher, uh, and the Lord uh, kind of saved me out of politics about four years ago. I started uh, at a church uh, as a young adult pastor, uh, and uh, we started. Uh, Mike and I started with about two uh, two young adults in a cafe. Uh, and we were meeting in a church cafe like the one that you have here in your lobby, Uh, and we began to pray and fast and believe God for revival. In about nine months, we had 300 young people crying out to God, believing for God to do something in their generation. Three years later, we planted a church in a barn, not a bar, but a barn. Uh, We had no indoor plumbing. We had outhouses. Uh, The city eventually kicked us out because we didn't have permits to hold church services. Uh, and a year later, we find ourselves where we are today. But it's been a journey. It's been a roller coaster. But the thing that we're beginning to learn uh, and the thing that we're beginning to notice um, about the heart of God is that he has invited us uh, on a journey where our comprehension isn't a prerequisite for our cooperation, um, where God has not asked me to build an altar to what I understand, right? Because when I bow at the altar of my understanding, I miss out on everything he understands, And so I want to get so lost in him. I want to be so lost, not like losing myself in the sense that I have to kill myself or die or the church, but so lose myself in who he is that when the world sees me, they see God. Uh, Even like the Apostle Paul talks of Jesus being the express image of the Father, uh, I think the heart of Paul is that we would read that and go, oh, um, my mandate and my calling is to be the express, express image of the Son. In the same way that Jesus reveals the Father, if the church isn't revealing the Son, Um, then maybe we've missed out on the reason why we're here. And so, like my heart is not to my heart is not to be a reflection of culture. It's not to be the reflection of a nonprofit tax status. It's not to be the reflection of any type of pet theology. My heart is to be a reflection of the Son, in the same way that the Son is the reflection of the Father. Right. And so that when people see me, they see uh, Christ. Even like the Apostle Paul said, "Follow me as I follow Christ." What's he saying? When you see me, you're not seeing me for me. You're seeing me for Him. Even like he communicates to the to, to the churches in the Galatian region, he says, "No longer." I who lives, well, what? Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith, not in the flesh. What, what is he saying? Uh, that not only do I identify with the crucifixion, but I also identify with the resurrection. Right, Because when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. And when he was resurrected, I was resurrected. And now I'm seated in heavenly places. Why? Because he's seated in heavenly places. And so everything that Christ has by inheritance, I have because I've been engrafted into the root of Jesse. Right, And so his promises are my promises. They're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I believe in hope for the nation of Israel. I believe in the hope of the Old Testament. I also believe that because I'm in Christ, I'm also a partner in covenant promise. And so I am connected to Christ because I'm bone of his bone and I'm Flesh of his flesh. And even like we say in marriage, and even like Christ said of marriage in the New Testament, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And so, what I've tried to do is to so establish myself in Christ that I have a James 1 anointing on my life, that I'm unshakable, that I'm unmovable, that trials only produce patience, which produces peace, which produces perfection in my life, that I can't be moved because what God has joined together, let no man separate. In fact, Harold was talking about this a little bit last night. I think all heresy. Um, starts at an unnatural separation of the Godhead or an unnatural separation of who God is from who he's created us to be. I think a lot of the heresy that we're dealing with today in the 21st century goes all the way back to the first century version of modalism. The idea that there's all these separations and like God is really far and Jesus is really nice and the Holy Spirit's really crazy and they're all really separate and God's angry and Jesus is happy sometimes and the Holy Spirit's schizophrenic and like we're all the way over here and all this type of stuff. And like the more I know about The father, uh, the the more I understand that he's closer than I think and he's better than I think. Right. And so not not only is he all around me, but he's also uh, involved in the way that I think and the way that because the scripture says in him, I move, I live and I have my being. And so if you truly believe that in him, you live, you move and you have your being then you can't operate with a false dichotomy between what is sacred and what is secular. Because you go, no, I've already lost myself in him. See, I don't, have, I, I don't have this like cognitive disconnect where I have one identity outside of church and one identity inside of church. I am so lost in him and he is so lost. Because see, when I invited Jesus into my heart, he invited me into his. And in, in an instant, he searched mine, but for all of eternity, I'll search his. Like, that's what's so great about the gospel message. That's what separates Christianity as a worldview from all other major philosophies, is that I've invited God into my heart, but he's invited me into his. And now I'm co-partnering with him uh, in the great harvest field because he no longer calls me a servant, he calls me a friend. Why? Because friends know the master's business. And I love that, that I've been invited not just into followership, but into friendship. Because I always get more sitting at his feet than I do working in his field. Right, that's the principle of Ruth. You always get more sitting at his feet than you do working in his field. I got it all just by sitting at his feet. Why? Because I'm more than a follower, I'm a friend. I'm more than just an individual who says, All right, God, like your will, not my will, and like whatever you want to do, and it's not about me. I mean, I think sometimes we get into praying these prayers that aren't really super reflective. Uh, or God honoring of the fact that we were created in his image. And so what I've tried to do is go, oh, what religion, what sin, what 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 anxiety, stress, depression and fear has done is it's dirtied up the image that God has stamped on my heart. So I'm going to sit at his feet until my reflection uh, is 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 truly the thing that he sees until my reflection truly animates the heart, the life, the faith of the Father. Let me just sit in His presence until I am so pure in heart, until I am so pure in mind that when the world sees me, they they uh, they see an accurate reflection of who the Father is. And so we've been on this journey. Here's what I've found is that whenever you step out to do something for God, God always has to do something in you before he does something through you. Um, Because if our prayer is for God to do something only through us, then I feel like we become old wineskins asking for new wine and we can't actually contain or pour out the thing that we're asking for. Do you know that I think sometimes God in his grace says no to the prayers that we are praying because he knows that if he were to give us what we were asking for, not only would it hurt us, but it'd be wasted. And so God sometimes says, no, not because it's a not ever, but because it's a not now. Why? Because the wineskin of your heart isn't ready for the thing that you've been praying for. Right? And so, you know, people talk about judgment starting in the house of God. I think revival starts in the heart of the individual. And so God needed to revive me before he could send revival to my church. God had to fix my marriage before he could work in our city. God had to do something in me first. Why? So I could be an accurate representation of both receiving and giving. Why? Because freely I received, so freely I can give. Oftentimes we got orphans running around trying to give the thing that they haven't first received. Right? So we receive from the Father that new wine in a heart that has been made into a new wineskin so that I can contain with ever-increasing capacity and so that I can give. Why? Because to the increase of his kingdom there will be no end. And so as long as my as I attach myself to his kingdom, watch, my destiny is unlimited increase. You can't not grow as a believer. You can't. Because to the increase of his kingdom there will be no end. People sign up for salvation and give their lives to Jesus, and instead of starting to grow, they stop growing. And it's so backwards. Remember in the book of John, there's seven great I am statements, and one of them is, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And if I remain in you, and you remain in me, you will bear much fruit, fruit that remains. And so when I look at the Scripture, what I don't see is signing up to... um, uh, you know, signing up to uh, kind of a, 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 a religious experience of, of you know, uh, behavior modification or or kind of you know, humanistic self discovery. When I look at the gospel message, I go, I'm being invited to be engrafted into something um, that so shifts my mindset and my destiny. Um, that my daily life becomes this picture of bearing fruit in season and out of season, like the trees planted by the river flowing from the throne in the book of Revelation, who bear fruit every month of every season. And so in my heart and in, in our church, our, 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 the method of our madness is to go, hey, um, we're going to get a lot of things wrong. We're going to get a couple things right. Um, but what we refuse to do is to be moved from a heart of purity that says we're going to run after God. We're not going to grow weary. We're going to soar on wings like eagles. Uh, and at the end of the day, whether people compliment or criticize, we can't be moved from the thing that God has asked us to do. Uh, And so, uh, in this topic, kind of of love explosion and and preacher passion, I want to share a little bit this morning out of Genesis uh, 39, and I'll I'll try to be as brief as possible. It's the story of Joseph uh, being uh, a slave in Egypt. Let me start off uh, on the story of Joseph by saying this. Um, Sometimes uh, God's promotion looks like man's demotion. Sometimes when God promotes you in everybody else's life, it looks like a downgrade. Um, but if you've learned to hear the voice of the Father, because we are the sheep and He is the shepherd, and the sheep know the Father's voice, right? As long as you're able to hear His voice, even when everybody else thinks you're crazy, even when everybody else says, well, you know, if you were truly following God, brother, you'd just be blessed because favor ain't fair and what's going on and, you know, uh, you'd have all of these kind of Christian cliches. Uh, but when you begin to hear the voice of God, what you begin to understand is that um, His kingdom dynamic is so different than this cultural dynamic in which we live, um, that in order to understand Him for who He is, you really got to have that Romans 12 renewed mind. You have to. Because even Jesus says to his disciples, you want to be first, you got to be last. You want to live, you got to die. You want to be rich, you got to poor. If if you want to uh, uh, save your life, you have to lose your life. Um, Because when you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I mean, all over scripture, what Jesus is doing is taking the paradigm and flipping it on its head. And he's saying, "Um, guys, you say you want to follow me, but foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But what if the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Are you still interested in following me? All over scripture, Jesus is readjusting the paradigm by which people view him. Not through the lens of comfort, not through the lens of religion, not through the lens of law, not through the lens of condemnation, not through the lens of shame, but through the lens of radical followership and radical friendship. Followership that turns the heart friendship that works in the spirit, in the mind, in the soul, in every part of you, uh, and and something that, that forever yokes you in covenant uh, to a holy God who is really, really interested in doing life, from an intimate perspective. And so as we read the New Testament, the thing that I hope that you're impacted by is that Jesus, um, the exhaustive, exclusive revelation of the Father, comes close to men via the Incarnation to readjust how people are thinking about God. The way that I think about the New Covenant is that God had a PR problem, so He sent Jesus. God so wants people to know who He's like that He ransomed heaven to send His best. God so wants people to have a correct view of the Father that He goes, let me send you the express image which is the Son. And He is going to course correct the way that you have viewed me for millennium. Do you know that you can search the Scripture and miss the heart of God? You can. How do we know that? Because the Pharisees had memorized large portions of the Torah and they crucified Christ. You can search Scripture and miss the heart of God, but you can never get into the heart of God and miss Scripture. Right? Because when you're in the heart of God, right, when He's the Word that became flesh, when you're in the heart of God, uh, what you begin to notice is that the things that He's been speaking to you, you'll find in Scripture. You know what I love to say, man? If you want to hear the voice of God out loud, the best way to do that is to read Scripture out loud. If you want to hear the audible voice of God, you can anytime. Just read scripture out loud. He's speaking all the time. But what I begin to notice in my own heart, I grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, my undergrad degrees in, in biblical studies, my grad degrees in leadership. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a very biblically literate household, a very heavy focus on intellectualism and education, and, and I'm a fan of all of those things. I, I, I believe in all of those things. Our church is starting an internship. Uh, the day uh, after we get home, I mean, we're, 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 we, are, we are on board with all that type of stuff. But what I begin to notice is that I could feed my brain, starve my heart, and miss the purpose of God for my life. Um, because your heart will take you places your brain can't fit. You know that? It, because in life, do you know that it's not the theology you believe that's important? It's the theology you practice. Oh, we can have a theology for healing. You never pray for somebody who's sick. Then you don't really believe your theology. I mean, we got churches that are a dime a dozen around the nation who are failing with awesome theological statements. I mean, you ever walk into a church that's failing and go, man, you know what I bet their problem is? Ah, their 12 fundamentals. I bet they're off. You know what they need? I bet they need a better vision statement. Ah, oh, that's what they need. I, I bet they need like a clear mission statement. I bet they need to discuss the difference. I bet if they had their vision statement in great stenciled letters across their church wall, that that would really make that thing work. And again, like I'm not—we have vision, we have mission, we have purpose, all that type of stuff. I'm just saying, I think we have—I—I—I—I I, I, I think we have allowed things that were supposed to be add-ons to become substitutionary in our relationship with Christ. Because here's the reality: what God blesses as a su- supplement, He'll curse as a substitute. Oh God, I'm hungry for you. I got vision. I got yeah. But you know, what begun in the spirit, now I'm leaning back into. Kind of what I formerly knew. Now let me lean back into my flesh. What begun in the spirit, let me, let me lean back into my flesh to finish. This is the encouragement of Paul in the New Testament. He goes, hey guys, stop leading back into your flesh. Stop going back to circumcision. By the way, you know what you call a cheap circumcision? A ripoff. <laughs> that was funny. You guys know that was funny. That was funny. Right, don't return to the circumcision of the flesh. But Paul said, what does he say? He says, <laughs> he says, return to the circumcision of the heart. Return to the circumcision of the heart. And so like Paul's encouragement to all of these churches, who, these guys who are getting saved out of like old school Judaism, he, he writes somebody, he goes, guys, what is started in the spirit must continue in the spirit. Because the temptation of life is to, you know how easy it is to get off track, get back into that flesh mindset, get back in that, without even trying. Because that is kind of the natural order of the world in which we live. It's so easy to slip back into the cruise control of the flesh. And so we ask God, Lord, continue to cut our hearts afresh and anew so that we can be sensitive. When walking through trauma and hard things, you got to hear the voice of God to harden your resolve, not to harden your heart. Right When you harden your heart, you return to the flesh. Oh, I'm not going to trust again. I'm not going to believe again. I'm not going to dream again. I'm not going to hope again. People should have done this. The church should have done that. My pastor should have done this. That person should have treated me better. Yeah, you're right. They should have. They didn't. Harden your resolve. Don't harden your heart. <laughs> so we've kind of walked through this journey over the last year of going, all right, God, um, keep us. Um, don't, don't allow us to grow at a rate um, that... Uh, that uh, would lead us to a place of uh, overcompensating uh, in the sense where we begin to rely on strategy, structure, systems, uh, instead of spirit. And so what we've said is, hey, the more that we can lean into spirit, the more that we can lean into the circumcision of the heart, not the circumcision of the flesh, uh, the more that we have, uh, and I to see in in ear to hear even in the book of Revelation, John is on the island of Patmos. The Roman government tries to kill him. They can't. Church history tells us they tried to boil him alive in the Roman Colosseum. He wouldn't boil. And so he preached a message in the Roman Colosseum, came to Christ. And so they send him to the island of Patmos. And the Bible says on the Lord's day, he was in the spirit. And he hears a voice saying, come up here. <laughs> I don't think the question that we face in life is, is God still speaking? I think the question we face in life is, is people still listening? Um, because even when you're all alone and you're stranded, you've been hurt and you've been abused and you thought life would be better because if you followed Jesus, you were going to win the lottery and rainbows and butterflies and unicorns every day. Listen, I'm not talking about a depressed gospel. I, I, in the same way that I don't believe in the prosperity gospel, it's the same way I don't believe in the poverty gospel. Um, I, I just believe in the Jesus gospel. So what I mean by that is I don't try to communicate in a way that to get you depressed or to get you into kind of like a warfare mentality. every day is going to wake up. you got to struggle just to survive. I'm not, I'm not communicating like that. I'm just saying that sometimes following Jesus looks different than we thought it would look like. And sometimes we end up cursing the answer to the prayer that we've been praying because it looks different than what we've imagined in our minds. How many times have we missed out on the revival that God wants to send because it looks different than what we've been praying for? Maybe revival isn't about a big church. Maybe it's about big people in a small church doing a great work. Maybe revival isn't about more money in a plate. Maybe re- Do you know what I mean? I just think sometimes the things that we are praying into, God so wants to answer, but our minds are so backwards that when it shows up, like the dragon in Revelation, instead of blessing the baby, we eat the baby. We kill the thing that God's trying to birth because it looks different than what we imagined in our minds. You know, for me, marriage looked different than I thought it would. Right? We've been married six years, we're figuring it out, right? We love each other, we love God uh, a lot of the time, <laughs> and we're, right? We're working on it. Okay, but marriage was different than I thought it would be. Sex was different than I thought it would be. Ministry was different than I thought it would be. Leadership was different than I thought it would be. Uh, Lead pastoring is different than I thought it would be. Being on a stage holding a microphone is different than I thought it to be. But God had to rip away the preconceived picture that I built. Guys, this is why one of the Ten Commandments is not to build graven images, right? Because when you have an image in your mind, you miss out on the express image that's actually there, right? Because you're looking for the wrong thing. Oh, I thought leadership would be different, man. I just, you know, when I work with interns, I work with young people. Teach me how to preach. Teach me how to pray. Teach me how to lead. I'm like, first off, you've got to empty everything that you've been taught so you can relearn some stuff. Because the problem is you have a picture in your mind of what this actually is. But you're not willing to clean. You're not willing to pray. You're not willing to sweep floors. You're not willing to evangelize. You're not wanting to wash anybody's feet. We have so prostituted the message of leadership from the New Testament. What does Jesus say? I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I came to be a ransom for many. We look at the message and the life of Christ and all the time he is flipping the paradigm on its head to say, guys, it's different than what you think it is. And here's the reason why I love reading the Old Testament. And by the way, you'll never understand the Old Testament unless you read it in light of the New Testament. You won't. Because it is an incomplete narrative that is speaking to a greater work. (laughs) And so I love the Old Testament. Um, And by the way, I think all of Scripture is equally inspired. I just don't think all of Scripture is equally applicable at all times. Right? So when a young man gets saved in our ministry, I don't send him to Leviticus. I send him to the Gospel of John. It's not because I want to remove Leviticus from Scripture. It's just because unless you have a revelation of grace, you will always misunderstand law. You will. You won't understand the purpose of the tutor that showed us the way in which we should. You won't understand the covenant of death, which made way for the covenant of life. And so here's why I love the story of Joseph, because what I see in Joseph is a picture of Christ. And what I see buried in the message and in the life of Joseph is this idea of Jesus trying to communicate to us what leadership actually looks like. What favor actually Looks like. Right, so in, in, in Genesis 39, I'll, I'll catch you up with the details. A lot of you are familiar. Uh, Joseph uh, is, is, is a, a favorite son of uh, his father. He has the coat of many colors. He has some dreams. His brothers are angry at him, and Joseph continues to have dreams. Uh, and his brothers hate him any, even more, and Joseph continues to have uh, dreams. In the face of hatred uh, and in the face of his family being upset at him, nothing can compromise the temperature or the passion of his dream. That's why I love Joseph. Uh, and he has a coat of many colors, and his brothers are jealous. And one day, Joseph is out in the field uh, taking care of his father's business, and his brothers devise a plan that they are going to kill him. Uh, Instead of killing him, they end up selling him into slavery, taking his coat of many colors, dipping it in blood, bringing it back to his father, and saying, hey, we couldn't find his body, but we think that a wild animal has eaten him. And Joseph goes from being the favored son of his father, walking around with a rainbow coat, symbolizing covenant, reflecting the heart of God, being somebody who's a dreamer, who's a visionary, who has great destiny, great plan, great progress, great process, a family around him. He goes from that, what seems to be a mountaintop, to being in a a pit, awaiting to be sold into slavery. And as I'm reading the story of Genesis, as I'm trying to identify with the life of Joseph, as I'm trying to identify with the life of Christ, what I hear God telling me is that every step of the way for Joseph was promotion, even when it looked like going from his father's house to the pit. Now, in Genesis 39, the story takes a different turn because he sold to slave traders and the slave traders sell him in turn to Potiphar, who is, uh, who is uh, essentially uh, uh, somebody with an esteemed political position in uh, the nation of Egypt. The Bible says this, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar... An officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of the master the Egyptian and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So watch, Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he made him overseer of his house. All that he had, he put under his authority. You continue to read the story, and those of you who are familiar with Genesis knows what happens. Potiphar's wife is interested in Joseph. Joseph is interested in serving the Lord. And we have kind of this narrative unfolding. Joseph seems to be back on the trajectory up. He seems to be back on his way up the seven mountains of influence. He seems to be back up on his way uh, to being the one who is recognized as as kind of a key leader and a key individual and and, and somebody who we we would place on staff right away and have everybody look at. And and he goes to work for Potiphar and he finds favor in his sight. Everywhere Joseph goes, favor follows him. Do you know that when you follow God, what follows God follows you? You don't have to chase favor if you chase God, because favor will chase you. Right, Even if your situations aren't favorable. One of the greatest testimonies to the goodness of God is that in the middle of a situation that everybody else wants to be delivered from, your prayer is not for deliverance, it's for development. God, don't take me out, just develop me in it. Because I bet I could find favor even working for Potiphar. I bet I could find favor working for Potiphar. God, if you're with me, If you're truly with me, I bet I could even find favor in working for Potiphar. Things are going right. Joseph is keeping his heart pure. Joseph is doing all of the steps for success that we've preached on, taught on, written books on, sold DVDs about. Joseph is doing everything right. And Potiphar's wife comes by and says, Hey, I want to be with you. I want to sleep with you. And Joseph says, No. (laughs) Not only is that not honoring to God, it's not honoring to the person that I'm working for. And the Bible says something interesting. I want you to begin to catch a part of the pattern here in Genesis. The Bible says this, that day after day she speaks to J- Joseph, said, hey, sleep with me, be with me. The Bible says this in verse 11, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were inside, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But watch, he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. Here's what I want you to see in Genesis 39. It's similar to what is happening here in Genesis 37. It's also repeated in Genesis 41. One of the things that you got to look for in Scripture is patterns, because patterns reveal the heart of God. Patterns reveal. It's like when you see a pattern in Scripture, it's like the Holy Spirit is taking a highlighter under the Bible and saying, look at this. (laughs) right? When you build mountains of theology off of minor things in Scripture, you get in trouble. You do. You ever hear somebody develop a really weird theology off of one verse that isn't found anywhere else, that hasn't ever been talked about in church history, that nobody has ever even mentioned, and they just think they're cool because nobody else has said it? I think sometimes saying things that nobody else is saying is cool. I think a lot of times saying things that nobody else is saying is dangerous. Uh, And so what I want to do is I want to say what God's saying. I want to shout where God shouts. I want to whisper where God whispers. I want to communicate what he communicates. And I'm okay with being a heretic. I think oftentimes heretics are just prophets before their time. But what I'm not okay with, right, is saying things that are so far outside of Scripture that the only justification exists in your mind. Um, And so in Scripture, what we see is like the Holy Spirit taking a highlighter and underlining certain things and going, hey, pay attention, pay attention, hey, focus, I'm trying to show you something. And here's what I've noticed. At every major transition in the life of Joseph, the Bible talks about him losing one garment and gaining another. Uh, you see this in Genesis 37. You also see this in Genesis 41 uh, where uh, Joseph is uh, uh, ministering uh, to his brothers who have come to seek uh, sustenance in a time of great famine in their land. In fact, this is how the Hebrew children wind up in Egypt in the first place. This is why many years later Moses has to go back and set them free because they go to Egypt for food and they never go back home, right? They go and they're prospering. Eventually there's about three million of them there and then Moses has to talk to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go. Right, But even what's happening here in Genesis 41, the Bible talks about Joseph changing his robe, changing his clothing. And as I'm reading the life and the story of Joseph, I'm identifying with it a little bit because my journey of church planning I thought would be a lot different than it was. Uh, and I'm looking at this and I'm hearing the voice of the Father saying to me this. And by the way, when God speaks to me, he never calls me by my title. He always calls me by my name because who I am is so much more important than what I do. Right, if you hear God speaking to you like prophet so-and-so or pastor so-and-so, it's probably not the voice of God. Right, because God, God calls you by name. You know when Saul was on the road to Damascus, he'd persecute Christians, and there's this great light in heaven, and what does he hear? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not archbishop, not prophet, not future apostle. Saul, why are you being an idiot? Stop, <laughs> stop. And so as I'm reading the Scripture, I'm asking, I I try to read Scripture under inspiration and inebriation of Holy Spirit, right? Um, Because if you read Scripture apart from that, you'll get all messed up. You will. I think we need, in the charismatic church, a lot more uh, it is written and a lot less God told me, right? Uh, And so what I like to do in Scripture is I like to find, I, I just, as I'm in Scripture, I'm just, I'm just, what I sense is, and sometimes, you ever had a revelation from the Lord that you haven't had Scripture for, and you'll sit on it for like a month, and then as you're reading Scripture, you'll get the verse that you were missing for the revelation you had? That's going to be all the time, right? And so, because not everything in my heart I preach, uh, right? Because you get dangerous when you preach everything in your heart. Because uh, sometimes there needs to be a seed that seasons for a while. Even, even the Bible says unless a seed goes into the ground uh, and first dies, it produces no good thing. Revelation that hasn't first died can't produce something good. So I allow things to go inside of me. I ingest them. I sit on them for a while, and then I go, hey, let me make sure my heart's right. Then I'm going to preach it. Uh, But as I'm identifying with the life of Joseph, the Lord's really speaking to me about this idea of how man's promotion looks different than God's promotion. Joseph goes from being the son of promise to being in a pit, hated by his brothers, mourned by his father, sold to the Ishmaelites, who are famous for nomadic slave trading, who in turn sell him to Potiphar, who's the chief of the guards uh, for Pharaoh. He ends up being accused of doing something that he's never done before. He ends up going back to prison. In prison, people around him begin to dream. He interprets that and then gets an invitation to interpret a dream for Pharaoh and finally finds himself essentially as the vice president of the nation's superpower going all the way from the father's house to the pit to Potiphar's to prison back to the palace. And when you look at the life of Joseph, the temptation of it is to look at it like this. He goes up, then he goes down, then he goes to the mountain, then he goes to the valley, then he has a good season, then he has a bad season, then he has a real uh, you know, revival patch, then he has a real dry patch, and then he has a real wilderness, and then he has a desert, and then he has a mountain. and our temptation is to look at it in a very kind of staccato fashion, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, but when I read the life of Joseph, and when I understand it from the heart of the Father, what I see is a trajectory for the heart of Joseph that never changes. That even though his season looks different, that whatever he steps into, God cloaks him with grace, with power, and with mercy that is more than sufficient not only to learn from what he's going through, not only to be developed in some of the hardest seasons of life, but to make an impact on the people around him in such a fashion that people who have never dreamed start to dream because there's been a dreamer deposited in their midst. I love that song you wrote, Chris, about releasing the dreamers. Because when I hear that, I think of the life of Joseph. And for me, my temptation when people treat me wrong is to get bitter. You know, before I planted a church, the number one thing that I would do when I preach, not the number one thing, but often what I would do is I would make fun of people who got hurt by the church. Everybody gets hurt by something. Oh, you're hurt by the church. And now you don't want to be in church. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'd say things like that. And if I didn't have a relationship with God, if I didn't have a friend like Mike, if I didn't have guys like Lighty, guys uh, like your pastors, guys like your team, just texting me throughout the week and month and, hey, I'm praying for you, hey, I believe in you, um, I would have planted this church and hated God and hated the church for it <laughs> um, because this thing looked so different than what I thought it looked like in my brain. Uh, Because when I sat down to plant, I had a nine-month strategy. And when I brought it to my church, I got let go. Uh, And uh, what I had to do is to to make the decision that I either heard from God, uh, that either his word was stamped on my heart, that I could, like Paul before King Agrippa, say, I must be obedient to the heavenly vision, or I had to kind of restructure everything I've ever thought about my own ability to discern the voice and the will of God for my life. And so what it did is it forced me to deconstruct all of the graven images that I had built around what it actually looked like to follow God and go back to the Scripture to identify with pictures of Christ and go, oh, sometimes my promotion looks so much different than how the world defines promotion. Because here's the reality. Whoever controls the definitions controls the debate and the narrative of your life. And if we allow culture to define promotion, you will never find promotion in God's eyes. And so I needed God to redefine what promotion, leadership, pastoring, servanthood, resource, friendship. I had to have God redefine that from the basic level. And I found comfort in the life of Joseph. Because I, I, I began to, to think in my spirit that um, if Joseph can retain a good attitude when his brothers sell him out, then I can retain a good attitude when I feel like I got mistreated. We planted, I had a six week old baby at home, no salary. No health benefits, no building. Um, And so that's why we planted in a barn. It's not because it was like the best thing out there. It's because we had no other options. Um, And we had outhouses and we had extension cords and we had electricity that would work sometimes during the service. And we just said, "Hey, we're just going to throw everything we have at it, and we're going to work to protect our hearts because maybe, just maybe, God's in this, and it's going to look different than we thought it would." And so, what I had to do is I had to let go of my preconceived ideas and notions of the way in which God was working, and go, "All right, I'm willing to follow you on the great adventure that you call faith." Because it's not impossible to please God without plans. It's not impossible to please God uh, without structure. It's not impossible to please God without you know neat plans. It's impossible to please God without. Faith. And so God said, hey, do you really trust me? If this looks so different, if this looks like going from the best paid job you've ever had to no salary, no health insurance, and a newborn at home, are you still willing to follow me? Uh, if this looks like trusting me uh, even though everybody else around you is calling you a prodigal uh, and, and 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 somebody who is rebellious, is it still worth it to uh, follow me? Um, is it still worth it to humble yourself under my hand that I would promote you in due time even if my promotion looks like going to Potiphar's house or going to a prison for a season of your life to provoke dreamers who are around you? Is it worth it to follow me even when my promotion looks different than your promotion? And I, had, I read wrestled with this, I would like to say, oh, I'm just a man of faith, man of power, for the power, and I, you know, whatever, I just can't, I just had an experience, and I just, you know, pulled myself up by the boot, no, I struggle with this, I thought I was crazy, when Harold was talking about being depressed, I've felt that the last 12 months, I've, 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 I've at times hated ministry, preached on Sunday, wake up on Monday, want to go back to politics, I mean, I've just gone like I've gone through the full range of emotions over this thing, uh, and 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 I've had on multiple times had to go back and 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 forgive people and release forgiveness and keep saying that they're forgiven until I actually believed it. And I mean, I've I've just walked through this journey of God deconstructing the person who I thought I was to reveal to me who I actually was because that's the kindness of God that led me to repentance was the voice of the father saying Russell this is who you actually are and I'm going to take you through promotion that looks like demotion to everybody else to reveal that image that has been covered up by the layers of dust from religion from organization from control from manipulation I'm going to remove that dust off of your image so that what I create through you looks like me instead of just what you've previously known we are all products of what we've previously known and that's why we're invited into the mystery of who Christ is because he is the one person that for eternity we will search to figure out and never even scratch the surface and that's the point because when I'm lost in him and when he lives in me then what I build doesn't look like me it looks like him and so God took me through the season of Joseph's promotion And every season, I'll end with this. Every season, I felt like the Lord was putting on a new garment for me. He was putting on a new coat. And it was like when I left the church I was at, and it was the best job I ever had. And by the way, we were having revival in our youth ministry. Lighty came up and, 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 and blew up our spot a couple times. I mean, hundreds of young people. We started with two in a cafe in nine months. We had hundreds of young people. I'm talking getting healed, baptizing the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, laid out on the altar. I mean, we'd have five, six-hour services. We'd have people coming in, sitting in the back, shaking their heads, disagreeing, being all angry. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Man, it was awesome. We were taking off the right people. We we, We were pleasing the right people. It was awesome. I loved it. Uh, and, and when I came out of that season, that was the most successful ministry season I'd ever had. It was like I was wearing a rainbow coat. I got away with everything. I did. Um, Mike will tell you, man, I, I got away with everything. I could do anything. I was the son of promise. Anything I wanted, we had a six-figure budget for our ministry. I'm telling you, anything that we wanted, I had. And coming out of that season, I felt like that thing was stripped off of me. And I remember thinking to God, man, I'll never get that coat back. And he said, that's the point. Because the season that you're going into, you can't wear that coat. For those of you who like love to to shop or, or whatever, you ever go into your closet and find something that you should have thrown away 10 years ago? And you look at that and all of a sudden you remember what it was like to wear that jacket. You have a flashback. Oh, the last time I wore that, I was a senior in high school. Oh man, I remember when that was cool. Oh, I would be mortified to wear. What is it reminding you of? A coat that you had for a previous season that you would never dream of putting on today because what it represents is something in your past. It's not bad. It's not good. It's neutral. It's just a representation of what you walked through. And I think so many of us are wanting to walk into the new season of God, but we are so layered with the old coats of old that God can't drape us in something new. Remember when David is fighting Goliath and Saul says to him wear my armor and David says no why doesn't David need Saul's armor because he already has Saul's mantle right if he was to try to wear Saul's armor all he would do is to be hindered for the season that God was asking him to be in no listen I got to be free I can't use your sword I can't use I can't use what formerly identified me to walk into this new thing that God's asking me to do you know, it's, 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 it's like when I bought my wife uh, her wedding ring. It was the most expensive thing I had ever purchased in my life. And I bought the $6,000 ring and they put it in a $6 box. And I was kind of confused until the Lord began to speak to me. And he said, it's not the box that gives the ring value, it's the ring that gives the box value. You don't want to lose the box because the ring is valuable. Sometimes we so overvalue the season of life we're in that we refuse to shed the clothes so that we can walk into what's new. And so God was saying, Hey, Russell, I'm taking off this robe. I'm taking off that season that you were in because now you're in a new season. And I walked in that new season for two or three months. And then God said, Russell, well done, good and faithful. And now I'm going to give you a new coat because now you're going to Potiphar. And now I need you to be faithful and I need you to be fruitful. And yeah, people are going to despitefully use you. And yeah, people are going to say things about you. And yeah, people are going to do that do that. Do, but I need you to hear my voice. So I'm putting on a new coat. And then I walked through that. And then God. Put, and so what I'm trying to communicate to you is this that the only certainty in life is that change. Change is a constant. And if you build an image to what you think God is like, and you miss out on what he is actually like, you'll be trying to wear yesterday's coat in today's season and then get upset about God because of it. It's not God's fault you refused to took off your coat. No, that was for yesterday's season. I'm walking somewhere new. So that's kind of uh, uh, my passion. I Just wanted to share that uh, with you guys a little bit. We're on a journey. Please pray for us. Uh, We planted a church. We're just going for it. We haven't Had it all figured out, but God's been super faithful. I could spend the next two hours talking to you about the miracle of our building that the Lord provided. God is doing some incredible things. Um, But I just want to honor uh, your pastor uh, for believing in me, uh, for praying for me, uh, for stirring and and stoking a fire inside of me. Do you know that it's really easy to honor the revelation of a visiting minister, and it's really hard to honor the revelation of the consistent shepherd? And I would encourage you to not allow your church to be a place where a prophet doesn't have any honor because it's his hometown. Don't allow the casualness of what you're used to to inoculate you from receiving from God. Because here's the reality. Jesus always turns water into wine. And I think oftentimes when we get familiar with people, we turn wine into water. And so I would encourage you to have a heart that says, no, I'm still going to turn water into wine. Because I really believe in what God is doing in Vegas, at ICLV, at Encounter. And I'm telling you, every time I come here, Mike and I both, God is stirring something in us. Every time we come here, we just get in the city and we go, man, I'm stirred. I'm stirred. I just need to be here. I need to be in this culture because I'm stirred. And so I just honor what God's doing in this house and appreciate you guys inviting me, making a platform for me. We're excited. We're full of passion. We haven't all figured it out. Um, but we're excited to seek out what promotion means to God, not to us. So, amen. Bless you guys. Thanks so much.